All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. I'm Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you after service. Um, this morning, we have our Harvest Festival. It's really a special morning here at Cedar Ridge. This is my first time at the Harvest Festival. Um, I've heard a lot about it. I'm excited about it. It's going to be a ton of fun, I believe. I believe the weather is going to be beautiful, and I'm just glad that we're able to be able to do this to celebrate uh, the bountiful harvest uh, that we've had this year. So I won't delay. I'll get right into the message. This morning, we're continuing our series, Surprised by Love, a journey through uh, Mark's gospel in the Bible. Uh, last uh, week, Ruth gave week two of that message, but the first week, Matthew opened us up and he introduced us to Mark's gospel. And in that week, we saw that Mark's gospel is the earliest and the shortest of, uh, of the four gospels. In fact, many scholars believe uh, that Mark, uh, the gospel writer, not the pastor Mark, but I mean, not Matthew, uh, the gospel writer, not pastor Matthew, and Luke actually copied from Mark when they were writing their gospels. And that's why you'll see uh, in uh, the three, at least, what are called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see some of the same stories towed uh, with nearly identical language. Uh, and then Mark, though, is kind of a shorter, uh, faster-paced gospel. It records fewer details than the other ones. The way I think about it is it's like this quickly curated um, compilation of scenes from the life of Jesus, just kind of all smashed together. It's moving rather quickly. It seems like Mark is kind of racing to get to the empty tune. Now, in that first week, um, Matthew also pointed out that Mark is, Mark's writing, at least in its original uh, language, is kind of sloppy and has uh, a poor sentence construction. Now, I don't know about you, but and um, th that point resonated with me maybe more than anything else you said, um, because the early drafts of nearly everything I write are pretty terrible. If it wasn't for my wife, who so graciously reads everything I write, I don't know that I'd be able to produce anything worth reading. I affectionately call her uh, the chief uh, proofreader in our house. Uh, Mark's gospel is filled with these moments, though, of mystery and misunderstanding as people meet Jesus and they're confused about who he is. And then there's these moments in Mark's gospel where folks realize who Jesus is and what God is doing and their lives are forever changed as they're drawn into the story of what God is doing in the world through Jesus. And I believe Mark's gospel invites us to join the journey, to come close to Jesus, to see, to understand, to be transformed. Now, last week, Ruth, in the second week of this series, uh, explored several themes that run through the first three chapters of Mark. And we saw that Jesus was willing to throw aside the religious regulations that contributed to the continued oppression of people. Jesus' ministry was com com uh, characterized by compassion for those that others avoided as he drew close to them. And he was willing to touch and heal and deliver and liberate people from all kinds of suffering and ailments. His very way of life uh, contributed to the flourishing of people. Ruth reminded us that not only does God yearn for our wholeness, but he meets us in our brokenness and that Jesus's life is such a powerful example for us and how we live our lives. If you missed any of those first two weeks of the series, you can go back and check them out 
on our website or even on, on YouTube. You can go back and watch those. Now, this week we're in Mark chapter 4, um, quite a chunk here. Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through 34. And we're not going to read every verse there, but we're going to kind of fly over it and look at some stuff here in this in this chapter. Now, Mark's gospel is filled with story after story of Jesus or about Jesus. Now, you probably have heard this saying that more is caught than taught. And that's how I kind of feel like Mark's gospel operates. Um, We learn the way of Jesus by witnessing the way that Jesus interacted with people in his daily life as we read Mark's gospel. But now if you sit down and read Mark's gospel straight through, or if you're like me and you uh, like audiobooks and listen to the audio version of Mark's gospel, you'll notice that chapter four is a little bit different than the surrounding chapters. You see, most of Mark's gospel is a narrative written about Jesus, but in Mark chapter four, the narrative kind of slows down and we hear directly from Jesus. Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter four. And when Jesus teaches, he often uses what are called parables. And the gospel contains quite a few. In fact, many people assume that they originated with Jesus. And in the block of teaching we're looking at in Mark chapter 4 this morning uh, is really just a series of parables from Jesus. Now, in the Greek, and uh, I'm not just using Greek to uh, make me sound like I went to school. Uh, I I, kind of hate it when preachers do that. In the Greek, here I am doing that. Uh, So in the Greek, the word parable is parabole. It's actually a compound word. It's made up of two words, para and balo. And so you'll see para means alongside, right? We're familiar with that word. Uh, Maybe parallel, paramedic, paralegal, parachute. Uh, Typically, words with this uh, prefix refer to something operating alongside something else, as in parachute. We hope that something operates alongside something else. And this word balo, it sounds like ball, right? It means to cast or to throw. And so a parable literally, quite literally, is really just one concept, usually a story form, is cast or thrown alongside another concept in order to to help the listener gain a better understanding or to teach a lesson or to teach some valuable insights. And we see Jesus doing this over and over again through the gospel. Jesus, Jesus tends to construct his parables from everyday activities that were people in his day were familiar with. And so he draws stories from farming and fishing and family life and everyday stuff like that. As a result, the parables don't really require any special knowledge or education really to understand them, but the deeper, more profound spiritual insights that they reveal are often difficult to decipher. And so people who heard Jesus' parables, they often walked away confused, and they didn't know what Jesus was talking about. Like, they got the story, right? But they didn't get the message that Jesus was teaching. Now, personally, when I read the Gospels, I often wish that Jesus would be a little bit more direct and straightforward. Um, But then when I step back and I really think about it, I'm reminded that there's not much in our world that's simple, straightforward or, or, or direct, right? There's always complexity and nuance in every situation. There's always a diversity of opinion and perspective uh, that adds character to 
every situation, kind of as Matthew was just talking about every situation that we deal with. And I believe one of the things that makes Jesus such a great teacher is his ability to navigate this nuance and direct us to the highest value, which is love. You see, Jesus is always centering this question, what does love require of us? And he refuses to give these static and sterile answers, but he challenges us to grapple with what love looks like in every situation. Now, I like the way Ashita Moore, she's a, a pastor and um, she's committed to peacemaking. I like the way she talks about Jesus's ministry. She says the whole ministry of Jesus was to establish a community that's so convinced of their belovedness to God that they proclaim the belovedness of others. Proclaiming the belovedness of others requires us to spend time wrestling with what love looks like. You see, the parables remind us that following Jesus isn't about obeying these fixed and straightforward rules and regulations and religious practices. You know, Jesus could have come and he could have given us a new law. He could have given us a long list of rules to follow, um, but he didn't do that because that's not the way of Jesus, because that's just not the way of love. Instead, the way of Jesus requires that we, um, that we wrestle with the text that we question it, that we interrogate it, that we read it, that we reread it, that we examine it carefully, that we uh, read it critically to understand what it looks like for us to follow Jesus today. You know, in a sense, the way of Jesus is very much a contemplative path that requires us to bring experience, reason, tradition all together and just kind of dwell with the text. The very nature of Jesus' teaching encourages us to think, to meditate, to sit in silence with Jesus, to engage in conversation with others, to come to a clearer, more enlightened understanding of what it means to follow Jesus today. Now, this is a radical break from the more reductionistic versions of, of faith uh, that center around the law. These more legalistic interpretations of scripture tend to elevate rules and regulations and static forms of religion and impose it on everyone everywhere at all times as a universal standard of good. But make no mistake about it. Jesus isn't giving us a new law. He's giving him us himself the fullest expression of God's love. You see, Jesus is drawing us into a way of life centered on love that requires us to wrestle in real time with what it looks like to live and love like Jesus. As such, the parables invite us or don't invite us into like a rote and written form of religion, but into a lived religion that welcomes us to come close to Jesus and learn from him to become like Jesus. Now, typically when, whenever I'm studying the Bible in, in a particular book, one of the first things I do, and that's what I did this past week, one of the first things I do is go to my bookshelf and I um, pull a commentary off the shelf. So I went this week uh, to my bookshelf. I pulled uh, my um, Mark commentary off the shelf. Now, commentaries are um, they're books usually written by Bible scholars that contain observations and explanations of the text. And so in preparation for this one, I got my Mark commentary. I flipped to the section on Mark 
chapter four and I started reading and almost immediately I came across this concept uh, called a Markin sandwich. Now I thought maybe I was a little hungry or misread something. I went back and read it again and I found out I would read it right. And then I was like, I'd never heard of this concept before. Um, and so I did uh, what anybody does when they wanna know if something is true. I went to Google and I Googled it and I discovered that a Markin sandwich is a real legit thing, right? There's academic papers that are written about it. There's some pretty neat YouTube videos if you're a YouTube person on Markin sandwiches. There's entire sermon series on Markin sandwiches. It's like really a thing. So I got to thinking, uh, I like Mark and we're in Mark and I like sandwiches. Um, and so we got to talk about Markin sandwiches. And so the short version of a Marcus sandwich is that it's a literary technique that Mark uses where he starts a story, then interrupts it, sometimes with a seemingly unrelated story, and then he returns to the original story. So he starts with story A. He uh, quite abruptly usually transitions to story B, and then he returns to story A. And story B is kind of like the the meat, if you will, of, of what's happening. It usually contains some key theological points that'll help us understand story A. And there's at least uh, nine sandwiches. There's some people who have actually named these as if they're at a restaurant and they're naming sandwiches. There's at least nine sandwiches uh, by some counts. I've seen counts where people have come up with more that exist in Mark. Um, and some are even more obvious than the one we're gonna look at in Mark chapter Four, but if you read carefully through Mark's gospel, you'll notice some popping up all over the place. So let's read a little bit of Mark four and we're gonna see how this works. So this chapter opens with Mark setting the scene for story A, the first story. So look at verse one. It says, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered around him or the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat set it out on the lake while people were along the shore at the water's edge. And he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, so, all right, let's pause right there because um, we see that um, Jesus is here at a location that we don't quite know what it is or where he is. The Bible doesn't really see. Most people assume that he's there on the Sea of Galilee, because at least three times in this book, we've already seen him there at the Sea of Galilee teaching people. Um, and there's a crowd around Jesus and it begins to grow and it's spreading so large. And this crowd is gathered for a number of different reasons, um, but largely because of the miracles that he's performing. And some people are there because of the message that he's proclaiming. Now, it seems kind of strange, at least to me, for Jesus to get out in a boat and decide to teach from there. Uh, though many scholars believe that this is an area that's become known as the Bay of Parables. In fact, scientists have studied it because it forms this natural amphitheater. I think we have a picture of it. Uh, natural amphitheater with acoustics to project a voice loud enough for large crowds. Some people say uh, even thousands of people could hear if you were there in the water and people were sitting there on the shore. Now, in Jesus' time, of course, the highway wasn't there, just in case you were wondering. Um, but that's what it looks like. Uh, what it looks like today. Now, in verse 
verse three, Jesus begins this parable. This is the beginning of story A, the first slice of bread in the Mark and Sandwich. Now, I don't know about you, but my personal preference is sourdough. So this is the first slice of sourdough bread in the Mark and Sandwich. So look at what he says here. Mark chapter four, verse three. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop. Some multiplied 30, some 60, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, if you attended church uh, or if you attend church long enough, you'll undoubtedly hear many messages on this parable. It shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a go-to passage for many pastors who want their congregations to take their messages more seriously uh, because it appears to put the responsibility on the congregation for understanding Jesus's message. Now, all the talks I've heard about this parable have centered around the question, what kind of soil are you? And the emphasis is usually on being in the right frame of mind, having the right attitude, being in the right place spiritually to receive Jesus's words. The underlying message is if you aren't transformed by Jesus's teaching, then maybe right, you're not the right kind of soil. Now, I think it's interesting that the focus of this parable is often on the soil and not the sower, especially considering that this parable is most often called the parable of the sower. In fact, if you look at their Bible, there's usually a heading at the beginning of a section, and it's likely that the heading in your Bible says the parable of the sower, not the parable of soils. Now, I know that these headings weren't original to the Bible, but at some point, some translators who probably spent more time reading the Bible than all of us in this room combined decided that this parable should be called uh, the parable of the sower. Now, I'm not saying that they're right, but you got to wonder why they chose to emphasize the sower, not the soil. Now, Barbara Brown Taylor, who's an Episcopal priest and an author that's written a bunch of books, uh, she talks about the difference it makes when we place the emphasis on the sower instead of the soil. Look at what she says. She says, this is a, this, if this is really the parable of the sower and not the parable of different kinds of ground, then it begins to sound quite new. The focus is not on us and our shortfalls, but on the generosity of our maker, the prolific sower who does not obsess about the condition of the fields, who is not stingy with the seed, but cast it everywhere. Now that sounds to me like the God of love that we read about in scripture. Generous, full of grace, non-judgmental, impartial, and just, that sounds like a God worth dedicating our life to following. So let's keep reading, because in the next section, Mark shifts to story B and provides some keys to understanding the parable. 
Remember, this is the meat of the Markin sandwich in our analogy. Or we're about to find out, um, we're about to find out what this sandwich is made of. I don't know what you're hoping for in your sandwich. <laughs> I like brisket. Mm. Mm. We're about to find or, or grilled cheese is fine too. Um, but we're about to find out what this sandwich is stuck with because that makes all the difference. Let's look at story B. Uh, the setting changes. Jesus is no longer in the Bay of Parables, but he's alone with the disciples. Story B is really just three verses, so it's it's not much meat here or vegetables, whatever you like on your sandwich. Uh, it's just three verses, Mark 4, verse 10 through 12. And look at what it says, starting in verse 10. It says, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they may turn and be forgiven. Now, and if Jesus' intent here was to clear things up, I don't think he achieved his, his goal. In fact, this passage has been referred to as one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to understand. But we're going to try to untangle it at least a little this morning. So look back at verse, verse 10. It says, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parable. So here we have 12 disciples and this unnamed, unnumbered, undefined group of others who are gathered around Jesus. And I think this ambiguous group is an important part of the story. You know, Mark doesn't tell us any details about them. He just tells us that they are in the room with Jesus. They're close enough to hear Jesus explain the parable and ask him questions and engage in conversation with him. And I got to imagine that Jesus taught them some things. And so here you have this group of people that are gathered around Jesus and they're grappling with what it means to live for God and love the world as God loves the world. And then look at verse 11 and look at what Jesus says. It says, he told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but those on the outside, everything is said in parables. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Now, we're accustomed to thinking about a, um, a secret as a message that's uh, whispered or shared with some discretion. But here Jesus says to this group of 12 and unnamed, unnumbered others, he says, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you already. And he says this because the secret of the kingdom is in the room with them. The secret or the mystery is Jesus himself. And it's only as they come close to Jesus and journey with him that they begin to gradually see with greater clarity who Jesus is and what God is doing in the world through him. You know, I think Jesus is dramatizing a spiritual principle for us about the kingdom of God. And that's that the kingdom of God can only be seen for what it is by those who are close to Jesus. 
And that's why there's so much confusion in the crowd that's gathered around Jesus. They've come for all different kinds of reasons. Some are there to see another miracle. Some are there because they're hoping to receive a miracle. Some are there and have ill intent. They're determined to stop this Jesus movement. But those who draw close to Jesus with curiosity and sincere questions gradually begin to understand what God is doing in the world. They begin to understand the secret of the kingdom, and they begin to feel what's often described as a sense of calling to follow Jesus. They feel called to multiply the love and light of Jesus in the world. And the reason why I feel that that Mark's reference to this group of others is important is because it's an ambiguous group that's only defined by its proximity to Jesus. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, Matthew talked about bounded sets and centered sets. He says some groups are bounded sets. They have a strong boundary where only certain people are permitted to belong. And often belonging is based on belief. In fact, many faith communities have are bounded sets and they use beliefs as a boundary to kind of filter out a certain kind of person. But then there's other groups that have a more porous boundary and a strong center. These groups are center sets. These groups, you can belong before you believe. Absolutely everyone is welcome, but they have a strong center that orients the group. Now, Cedar Ridge is committed to being a centered set. We like to say we're a community of hope and transformation dedicated to following Jesus. That means we talk a lot about Jesus because he's our center. But absolutely everyone is welcome to join on the journey of discovering what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I think what we see here in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, is a centered set. This ambiguous, undefined group that Mark just calls others are welcomed in the room with Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us who they are or where they are on their spiritual journey. He doesn't tell us their background or what they believe. He just tells us that they're in the room with Jesus and no one is questioning whether they belong there or not. Now, some people have been confused by Jesus' use of the word outsider in this verse because it sounds like he's drawing a boundary and defining who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't. However, if you read it carefully, you'll see that Jesus isn't creating a boundary. Rather, he's recognizing that distance creates dissonance. He's acknowledging the fact that it's hard to follow from afar. He's really just calling it like it is. Those who are keeping their distance, standing outside, away from him, are quite literally outsiders. However, for Jesus, these aren't fixed categories. Insiders aren't forced to be there. They can become outsiders if they want to, and outsiders are welcomed to come in. The boundary is porous. Absolutely everyone's welcome to join the journey of following Jesus. It's a center set with a porous boundary, and Jesus is at the center. And that's why I think Jesus quotes from the Old Testament prophet prophet Isaiah in verse 12 in reference to those on the outside. He's adopting a phrase that Isaiah used 
to refer to people who uh, chose to reject the work, chose to reject what God was doing in the world. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 12. Actually, I'll back up and read verse 11 uh, for context. Uh, he says in verse 11, uh, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. You see, from a distance, Jesus is acknowledging that those on the outside may see what he's doing, but they're not going to perceive it. They're not going to recognize what God is doing through him. And they may hear what he's saying, but they're not going to understand it. They're not going to hear it as the work of God in the world. And I think Mark is not just informing us by writing this, this down. I think he's inviting us. I think he's inviting us to come close to Jesus, to center our lives around Jesus so that we can see, hear, understand and be transformed by the good news that is Jesus, that we too may be good news to the world. All right, so back to our Markin sandwich. It's time to complete the sandwich with the second slice of bread. In verse 13, Mark returns to the parable, uh, story A in our analogy, um, let's read it in light of what Jesus reveals in verses 10 through 12. And I think what we'll see is that it's not about the quality of the soil, um, but rather more so about the location of the soil. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word but some are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away, takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown on the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for the things, for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And so in this parable, we see that the path is not a good location for seed to grow. That would be almost like us walking out this door and throwing seed on the asphalt out there on the parking lot and the drive coming in. Of course, the birds are going to come and eat it up. Nothing's going to grow there. But the generous sower still sows there. And the crevice between the rocks isn't an ideal location for seed to grow either. Can stuff grow there? Of course it can. Just walk out here, turn to the right, and go to the gravel parking lot, and you'll see weed and grasses growing up between the rocks. Stuff can grow there, but it's not going to produce an abundant harvest. But the generous sower still sows there as well. 
in the area around their aggressive and invasive thorn bushes poses a whole nother set of challenges. They're going to grow up and they're going to choke out anything that grows near them. You're just not going to get a great harvest there either. But the generous sower still sows there also. Now in the area that's prepped for farming, the area that's fenced in, the area that's protected from wildlife, that's has an unobstructed view of the sky so that it can receive plenty of sunshine. Now that's an ideal location for seed to grow. In fact, that's why we have the harvest festival today because seed sown in the right location produces an abundant harvest. You know, I think Jesus wants us to see that location matters being close to the sun, having our lives centered in Jesus makes a world of difference. We can only journey from confusion to enlightenment, to understanding, to participation in what God is doing in the world as we journey with Jesus. And I think Mark wants us to hear the good news that this group of others that's gathered around Jesus has a porous boundary, that you belong there, that you belong close to Jesus, that you're welcome to come close to Jesus and hear him, to learn from him. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you're welcome to come close to Jesus and center your life in him. You know, every Sunday we have a time of uh, response where uh, we respond to um, the scriptures and the worship that we uh, experience on Sunday mornings. Now, for you, this may um, it may really just look like staying where you are and sitting in your seat and reflecting on your week or something that's happening in the world, thinking about your family, thinking about loved ones that are distant, thinking about your life and following Jesus. For others, it may mean coming to one of the communion stations around this room. And we have a table in the center and two tables on the side where um, it's a good opportunity to come to the table and reflect on Jesus and reflect on what he's done, what he accomplished, who he is, what he's calling us to. Some others like to gather in the back of the room and um, where there's stations where you can pray and you can lament or stations on the side where you can reflect on racial justice and your role in making the world a more just place. You know, really, however you feel that God is calling you to respond in this moment, whether it's doing nothing or doing something, feel, don't feel any pressure to do anything. But let's sit and allow God to move us however he will. Let's pray. And God, we are grateful. Uh, we're grateful today um, that we have um, really a long, um, ancient story um, of your teaching through Jesus. God, we're grateful that we can read uh, stories in the scriptures and um, that we can gain meaning from them for our lives. 
And God, we're thankful that you welcome us to come close, to belong, to hear, to gain understanding, to move from confusion to enlightenment, that we might be transformed, may follow you, and help make this world a better place. In this moment, please meet us here. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Is it?